Following a Folk Tale Through the Himalayas by Michael Beninav In a high hamlet, a two-hour trek up a verdant slope beneath ice-clad Himalayan peaks, an argument erupted over a folk tale. Two brothers, Pralad Singh Duryal, 60, and Hira Singh Duryal, 77, heatedly debated which nearby village in the Jover Valley was once the home of the story's heroine. Eventually agreeing on a few possible locations, Hira said that the story, which is sung as a ballad and which he remembered from childhood, was virtually unknown today among the area's young people. They're the YouTube generation, he explained with a shrug. No one even knows how to sing it anymore, Pralad added. The voice of Pralad's wife, Sundari Devi, rang out from the kitchen into the courtyard, where I sat with the brothers and a couple of other people in front of clothing drying on a line and pieces of a butchered sheep drying on a neighbor's stone-shingled roof. You don't know what you're talking about, she shouted. Some people do remember how to sing it. Just because it's old doesn't mean it's not important. In the Kumon region of the Indian state of Uttarakhand, where skyscraping summits soar over a maze of sublime hills in a corner of the country that abuts Nepal and Tibet, the story known as Rajula Malashahi has been passed down orally for hundreds of years. A sprawling epic of adventure and true love that unfurls across a broad swath of the landscape, it's long been recognized as Kumon's preeminent folktale. Short versions were sung by parents to their children, while renditions lasting up to 10 hours were performed by herkiyas, or traditional bards, who chanted and drummed alongside a handful of backup vocalists for local audiences, often as a way to pass cold winter nights, before televisions, and now smartphones, became ubiquitous. When I first learned about Rajula Malashahi on a previous visit to Kumon, I was immediately intrigued. After reading as much of the literature about it as I could find, I decided on a recent trip to use it as a guide to traveling through the area, letting it take me places I might not otherwise think to go. While creating an itinerary, I realized that there was no definitive route to follow, since there is no definitive narrative. Before it was first written down in the 1930s, numerous versions were sung. Though they tend to share the same overarching plotline, there are many variations among them, including where certain episodes are said to have occurred. It seemed fitting that planning a trip around a centuries-old folktale was more an act of creative interpretation than a strict adherence to a single text. I headed first for the Johar Valley, which is where the story, according to most versions, begins. There, a girl named Rajula, who was so beautiful that the sun paled before her, was born into the Shauka tribe, one of the subgroups of shepherds generally known as Boshas. Her father, Sunapati Shak, was the richest trader in the region, shuttling goods over the Himalayas between India and Tibet on the backs of sheep and goats, the best animals for navigating the treacherous terrain. Historically, this once lucrative route thrived for about a thousand years before collapsing in 1962 with the outbreak of a war between India and China and the closure of the border. In the story, Rajula grows into a clever and confident young woman. She meets Malashahi, the young monarch of the Katyuri kingdom, which ruled Kumon from around the 7th to the 11th centuries, and they fall in love. They are quickly separated, however, as her hand has already been promised by Sunapati to the son of a Tibetan king, an important trading partner. Rajula, rebelling, escapes from this undesirable arrangement, then travels through Kumon to find Malashahi again, overcoming numerous obstacles with her courage and quick wits. After many dramatic twists, including deceptions, murder and sorcery, the lovers are finally reunited either happily or in death, depending on the version.
After initially arriving in Delhi at the end of last September, I traveled for a few days, first by rail, and then by road, to the Jover Valley's main town, Munsiari. My friend, the writer Shikha Tripathi, who is herself Kamani, happened to be there working on a story about climate change. Together, by SUV and on foot, we traveled for most of a morning to the village of Peyton, where we talked in the courtyard with the Duriel brothers, as Shikha translated. More on India In Kashmir The India government is reviving local militias in the Jammu part of the rest of region, laying bare the limits of the country's military approach there. Giving voice to the voiceless A journalist who belongs to a caste once deemed untouchable by India's hierarchical system is hoping to use her news outlet to improve the lives of the country's most marginalized people. Ubiquitous QR Codes India's homegrown instant payment system has remade commerce and pulled millions into the formal economy. Gin Boom A blossoming of gin distillers in the southern state of Goa is challenging India's conservative attitude toward alcohol, along with the country's often stultifying bureaucracy. Our conversation concluded when a village-wide feast began. A woman who had married a man with family in Peyton was making her first visit, 13 years after their wedding. Everyone came out to welcome her, including people who now lived elsewhere and had returned for the celebration. Vats of rice, mutton and dal had been prepared, and we ate on flat rooftops with views of the valley walls slanting sharply into the clouds. When the feast wrapped up, Shika and I went back to Pralad's place to get our bags and shift to the house where we'd been offered accommodations for the night. I stepped into the kitchen to bid Sundari goodbye and found three other women sitting on the floor with her. Before I could say thank you, two of them began to sing, filling the low-ceiling space with the resonant tones of the first verses of Rajala Malashahi. They sang for about five minutes, which was more than long enough to transform the dimly lit room into a musical time machine, transporting us beyond the temporal world into the wonder of the moment. It was Sindari's gift to us, and was her way of conclusively proving the point she had made to her husband. The next day, Shika and I hiked, drove and hiked, uphill again, to a village where Hira had told us that some of Rajala's community had scattered after being cursed at the end of her story. Upon reaching Jimia, we learned that a celebration of the Hindu festival Dasara was about to begin. Led by drummers and men carrying saplings adorned with flags and tufts of yak hair, a joyous procession descended from the homes at the core of the village to a small temple at its edge. Two sheep were sacrificed to the local goddess, Bharari Devi, a form of Durga, a major Hindu deity. The drumming surged with fevered intensity and the jagger, a ceremony in which the goddess enters into the body, or bodies, of one or more of those in attendance, began around a smoldering bonfire. A possessed woman staggered around like a zombie. A man named Gajendra Singh Quirial, the village's grandpraden, or leader, fell to the ground and convulsed on the fire's edge, caking himself with ashes and embers. The goddess then settled into Rudra Singh Quirial, Gajendra's brother. Blankly staring at something no one else could see, he flung rice over himself and into the crowd. Villagers shouted questions one atop the other, like a scrum of reporters at a chaotic news conference, seeking help with their problems. Most persistent was a middle-aged man desperate for his wife to have their first child. Barari Devi promised to grant his wish. 
when the jagger was over, the Prathen, who'd brushed himself off, asked me to snap a picture of him with his wife and daughters and insisted that Shika and I stay with them that night. Rice and meat from the sacrificed sheep was served to all. On a grassy terrace, just above the temple, women danced in a circle while singing songs to welcome back to the village their sisters and daughters who had moved away after marrying men from other places. Some of the dancers wore traditional shauka dress, including embroidered headscarves, black blouses, and black skirts. When we spoke to the women as they sat together following an hour or so of dancing, the elders among them said that they had all heard the tale of Rajala Malashahi, but only one remembered how to sing it. Encouraged by the others, Tulsi Devi Nuraram performed a few verses, surprising me with a completely different melody and rhythm than I'd heard the previous day. Everyone I would meet who knew the storyline of Rajala Malashahi, the youngest of whom appeared to be in their sixties, spoke of it as though it was based on actual events, while well aware that it is a folktale. It occupies a liminal space in the collective imagination, somewhere between fiction and fact, fantasy and reality, which was not unlike how I internalized my experience of that day. The following night, which Shika and I spent at a homestay in the village of Darkit, a center of shauka weaving, we met with a folk theater performer who was well-versed in much of the scholarship about the tale. After launching into a long, impassioned analysis of which elements of particular versions were most likely to be true, Lakshman Singh Pangti concluded by saying, there is no guarantee about anything I've said. After all, it's a 500-year-old story. Shika stayed in Mansiyari, and I continued on alone. I first went to Bajshwar, where Rajala once stopped to pray. The god Bagnath, a form of Shiva, was so overcome by her beauty that he attempted to extort her affections with threats and promises, a deal she angrily refused. When I visited the same site at the confluence of the Sarayu and Gomathi rivers, where a 15th-century Chandera temple stands, women had gathered to observe Karwachath, praying for long life for their husbands. In the bustling, friendly town, scenes of life and death, commerce and worship, played out on the streets and riverbanks on a scale large enough to fascinate yet small enough to be absorbed without overwhelming. In the hills and villages of the Gomathi Valley, women harvested winter fodder for their livestock, men turned fields with plows pulled by oxen, and everyone I met was happy to see a stranger and chit-chat in Hindi. I was charmed by the town of Dvarhat, where Katiriyara carved stone temple complexes are tucked among brightly colored houses and gardens, near where Rajalo was captured, beaten and left for dead in the forest. And I visited the riverside temple of Agniyari Devi in Chakudya, where Malashahi first laid eyes on Rajala, and she laughed at him for mistaking her for the goddess herself. Along the way, I happened to meet a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy who knew one of the last great Herkias of Kumon. Before long, Nain Nathravel invited me to his home, in Sarola village, to hear him sing. I went with my friend, Sriyani Dutta, who was staying near Almora, some two hours away. Ravel's two-story stone house was set along a ridge atop cascading terrace fields with eye-popping views of the high peaks. He invited us into a room on the upper floor, with shelves of awards for his contributions to Kamani culture, and pictures of gods and goddesses encircled by flowered garlands hanging on bright yellow walls. An 81-year-old farmer, he was taught to sing by his mother, who gave him lessons when he was young. 
when, among many questions translated by Sriyani, I asked why audiences root for Rajala when they wouldn't approve of a young woman from their own community overtly disobeying her father, breaking a marriage contract and running away to find her beloved, he acknowledged that today, her family would probably send the police after her. But, he explained, Rajala and Malashahi were destined to be together, which meant that Rajala was doing the right thing. If that happened now, he added, you couldn't prove that fate was involved. The story's theme, he said, is turning divine intention into reality through love. Ravel sang while playing an hourglass-shaped drum, called a hurka, for over 20 minutes, accompanied by Baji Nath Ravel, who tapped on a stainless steel plate, while two vocalists, Mohan Nath Ravel and Chandan Nath Ravel, sang backup. Though he had made more than 120 recordings during his career, this was the first time he had recorded Rajala Malashahi. Ravel remarked that he used to perform the ballad around Kumon at all-night festivals, but that they were rare events these days. My generation is trying to keep our local culture alive, as much as we can, he said, but times have changed. For now, at least for those who recall it, the story is still woven into the landscape, which conjures memories of a young woman who, ages ago, defied convention to follow her heart. I hope this song survives, Ravel said, as we headed downstairs. Michael Beninav is a writer and photographer whose most recent book, Himalaya Bound, One Family's Quest to Save Their Animals and an Ancient Way of Life, was published in 2018. Follow New York Times Travel on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And sign up for our weekly Travel Dispatch newsletter to receive expert tips on traveling smarter and inspiration for your next vacation. Dreaming up a future getaway or just armchair traveling? Check out our 52 places to go in 2023.